Harry Ekman. Matthew Payne. Harry? Yes. Are you looking out for a number one charting podcast? Yes, I am, actually. Funny you should say that, as I've been trying to find one. You got any recommendations? Well, Harry, I can tell you about the number one podcast in Ireland. Tell me. The number one nature podcast in Croatia. The number, the number one, one... Na- nature podcast in Portugal. What is it? It's only us, Harry. No, shut up. Yep. We are. We are the number one podcast, nature podcast in Ireland. The number one nature podcast in Croatia and Portugal. Top five, Harry, in Spain, Switzerland, Japan. Wow. Yep. The seventh in the UK. Seventh nature podcast. Seventh yeah. Number seven yep. of all the nature podcasts in the UK, we're the seventh one. How many are there? It's like nine, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So we're doing well. <laughs> we're doing well. Top 10 in Mexico, Italy, Canada, Australia. Top 20 in the States. Harry. Wow. And got news what? for you, Harry. More news? That's oh, not enough news. No, only only gone and bloody well got a download in Ethiopia, haven't we? A download in Ethiopia? Yeah. God bless that person. Thank you. Uh, and, and as a result, we're the number one rated nature podcast in Ethiopia. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> but we, can we say now we're the number one, can we put like a little thing on our logo? You can say, one. yeah, number one nature podcast. See small print, not applicable in every country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the science nature bracket. Um, so, wow, that's pretty yeah. amazing. Well, I think we should thank our listeners and yeah. downloaders for making us number one in certain countries. Guests as well. Of course, guests. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, guests. Thank you, listeners. But mainly, let's just thank ourselves. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Harry. And you know what, Harry? What? When we started this, do you remember we used to talk about how we would only do this for as long as we enjoyed it? Well, that's complete bollocks now. Because oh, I, no, it's bullshit. This I just want to get to number the, one in the it's UK. It's fortune and glory. This yeah. is what this is. It's fortune and glory. I'm only in this for the, like, I want to be number one every, and not just not just nature and science. I want to be the number one rated podcast of all the podcasts. I mean, number seven in the UK, I'm not happy with. I want to get to number one. Joe Rogan, we are coming for you. Um, Pod Save America, you better start quaking in your boots, folks, because we're coming for you. Adam Buxton... We are coming for you. Wait a minute. Um, Sam Harris, your meagre podcast. I can't think of any more podcasts, sorry. (laughs) But you know what? What we're actually doing, we're now publicizing other people's podcasts. Yeah, I know. They can go fuck themselves. So, um, (laughs) because we are the number one podcast, nature podcast in Croatia. Two weeks, Harry. This is like being in steps. (laughs) How is this like being in steps? Did you get number one in Croatia. And how many people are going to get that reference? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> our, our, our listener in Ethiopia is really confused right now. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. This so, isn't science or nature. She's <laughs> just bollocks. <laughs> uh, well, oh. let's bring it. Let's bring it back to science and nature and animals. Yes. Let's, let's do, do this. that. Because this is a really good episode. I know we say that a lot, but this one really is, isn't it? We have this week... Who who, who have we got this week, Matt? Tell me. Who have we got? Well, we've got Leah Garces. Now, so when we were recording this episode, I put out a Facebook message and Instagram thing and tweeted and stuff. Because as we were doing it, it just felt like such a privilege listening to her. And she's just amazing. And like, I hate using that word because we use it in every single podcast. We use the word inspiring well, stop. and amazing. And <laughs> there's something about this episode, it just blew me away. There's just something about Leah and her story and her attitude and her approach and how driven and determined she is. Even if you don't work in this industry, you will get something from this. She's such a role model. She is. She is a force of nature. And what she has achieved is one of the things that we talk about on this podcast as well is people's journey as they've progressed through animal welfare and the choices that they've made and the way in which they approach their career and wanting to make a difference and have an impact. And Leah's story is, is just exceptional. The motivation behind what she did, the way in which she went about it. And what I really loved about chatting with Leah was not just hearing a story and, and she was just so lovely to speak to, an amazing sense of humor, but her relatable story, like for anybody that's involved in animal welfare, interested in animal welfare, thinking about getting in animal welfare, there's so many parallels about 
how you go about making a decision, why you make the decisions that you make. And I just found, like you said, we use the word inspiration a lot, but it's no exaggeration to say that Lee is definitely an, an inspirational figure in animal welfare. The work that she's done, the career she's had, the difference that she's made in farm animal welfare and chicken welfare, it's really fantastic. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So let's get on with the number one science nature podcast, the Animal Chat podcast with Leah Garces. when you were a child and what was it like for you to make that decision I believe when you were 15 to become a vegetarian uh yeah my very clear inspiration as a child were ducks believe it or not um which is in my book a whole chapter about ducks which I grew up in the swamps of Florida and right in my backyard was this lush environment of cypress trees and alligators and otters and ducks. And they used to come up into my mother's prized flower beds and the mothers would lay their eggs in these flowers. And my brother, sister and I, from the other side of the screened in porch, were able to watch the lives of these ducklings and the relationship between the mother and the ducklings unfold. And it was just very, I was so curious about them. They were like us, but not like us. There was a, you know, that saying that there was a difference of degree, not kind. And growing up, I just loved trying to understand their world and trying to be in their worlds. And I grew up with this clarity that, of course, they were worthy of protection and a life worth living. And I didn't make the connection that those ducks, which are just like chickens, were the very beings that were ending up on my plate until I was about 15. And it was when I was about 15 in that age when you're really rebelling and thinking through the world and why it's like the way it is, that my cousin and I were watching this documentary on a public broadcast station at two in the morning, as you do when you're 15. And it was about the life of a cow. And it was like a light bulb went off, like the connection between the animals that were in the field, the ducks that I loved, and the meat that was on my plate, that was it for me. And she and I and the two boys we were dating at the time, one of which became my husband, um, the one I was dating, not the other one. Um, <laughs> he, we all became vegetarian. And it kind of didn't turn back from there. I really wanted to work in environment and protecting animals in the environment and maybe be like an exciting wildlife vet. But along the way, I discovered how badly farmed animals needed us. And I moved to London to do my master's degree in environment and development at King's College. And I got my first job out of college was working for Compassion and World Farming in the UK. So I would do the opposite commute where, you know, I lived in expensive, like 600 foot flat it was a studio at first, and then I was paid like 17,000 pounds and then used half of that to take the train to Petersfield. And then the other, you know, the other, that's how passionate I was. I was like, I'm going to help farmed animals, even if it breaks the bank. And that's how it started. And I didn't really look back from there. How long were you at Compassion? I was there for two and a half, three years. And while I was there, Philip Limbury was a consultant at the time at Compassion World Farming. He got recruited to head up, be one of the you know, senior directors at WISPA. And they actually called me in and headhunted me for a job in doing research at WISPA. But when I got there, I actually said, I don't want that job. I want that job when I went for the interview, which was for a head of campaigns job. And I hadn't done campaigning before, but I blagged my way through the entire interview. I read a book the night before about how to campaign. So I knew what I was supposed to say. <laughs> and... Um, sorry, sorry. I'm just going to bask it. I love that. That's something that I would love to do here. Right. And, you know, I was running the international programs at Compassion World Farming, but Philip gave me the job. And to me, that's one of the, you know, I got a couple good breaks in my life and that was one of them. And I think what he tells me now is you, it's not, a, you either have a knack for campaigning or you don't. 
And it's not something you can really learn. You either have this instinct for where the pressure is and where you can change things and how to change them and a desire to do so, you know, a a drive and a kind of fire in your belly to change things. And so he gave me that job. And then when he left to be the CEO of Compassion and World Farming, which he still is, I took his job at WISPA and I stayed there for seven years. So I oversaw the global campaigns and programs. And that was a fantastic job that took me all over the world that I really enjoyed. What were those programs in particular, Leah? Well, it was every possible way humans cause suffering to animals, really. Whether that be working horses in Colombia, whether it be bare bile farming in China, Vietnam, in South Korea. It was factory farming, specifically in China and Brazil. Dolphin trade, I fought against the dolphin trade in dolphinariums where we tried to stop the trade of capture of dolphins in Fiji going into Mexican dolphinariums, bullfighting in Spain, every really possible way. In in India, we were working on spay and neuter control programs for stray dogs, every way that humans cause suffering to animals we were looking at. And for me, that gave me early in, in my career just Giving this understanding, there's like a limited pot of resources, so many animals that need our help. We have to be ruthlessly strategic if we're ever going to make any difference. And I think by the time I was 30, I had been to over 30 countries and had seen all these different ways. And it was when my son was born, and he was born when I was 29, my first son, that I had this realization, okay, time is ticking now for sure. 18 years from now, he will leave. So I better make my time worth something, really worth something. And that's what I started to say, okay, I really want to focus on farmed animals. This is the thing I feel is tractable and neglected. And we we can fix this. And it affects so many animals. It's There's such a huge number of animals, more than any of the other things I was dealing with, whether it be bear bile or dolphinariums or even stray dogs. There was just 80 billion today that are raised and slaughtered every year. So that's when I focused on, decided I was going to move towards focusing on farmed animals. I proposed to Philip Limbury a new office in the United States for Compassionate World Farming. And I remember he used, I used to meet with him quite regularly, sometimes in Waterloo Station, and we'd meet in the coffee shop and he would just give me advice and he was a great mentor for me. And then one day I showed up with one side a piece of paper saying, I think you need a U.S. office. And I remember his kind of eyebrows raised and, you know, in the same way where I was like, I don't want that job. I want that job. I just told him, you need a U.S. office. And by that time, I was pregnant with my second child, my son, and my husband had been recruited by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, which is the government agency that deals with, he's an epidemiologist without breaks and disease prevention. And he had been headhunted. We decided to move back to Atlanta. And I said, that's where the office should be. Because it is Georgia, where I now live, is the biggest producer of chickens in the country. And if it was a country, it would be the sixth biggest producing country in the world. So here I was moving to the heart of darkness, the factory farming, where it had all started, in fact. And I thought, this is the perfect place to be. No one else was there working on this issue. They were in D.C. or New York or L.A., but not in the actual place where it had started. So it took about a year and, and Philip eventually came back to me and said, all right, here's two days worth of pay and a laptop, go. <laughs> <laughs> Very generous. That was really nice of him. <laughs> I find that really interesting, Leah, because when we've spoken to other people on this podcast and when you speak to other people in animal welfare and when they talk about a transitioning moment or a defining moment where their career or their choice of what animal they're going to dedicate the next stage of their life to. They often talk about it from an animal's perspective. Uh, Jill Robinson talks about uh, the bear bile farm that she visited in South Korea. Lola Weber talks about the dog meat farm that she visited. What I found amazing and really lovely about your story is actually your decision was actually based on a perceived future of your child and a world that you actually wanted to leave them. And that was kind of a defining factor as much as the animals themselves is the legacy that you wanted to leave. And I thought it was really lovely. Well, um, you know, I really want to hand them a world better than the one they came into and be able to stand by 
that I did something that I really, I did everything I could, you know, the, the world that kids are inheriting now in some ways is much better, right? Poverty is less and violence mm-hmm. is less, but in some ways it's a much more precarious and difficult future where we're more aware and we can do more, but we don't. And I just want to be able to hand them a world that was better when it comes to these issues. When you were at Whisper mm-hmm. and for those years that you were exposed to all of that cruelty and all of the horror that is put upon animals by people, you said something there which really resonated with me, which was it made you be ruthlessly strategic. And strategy in animal welfare is a, is a personal passion of mine, a strategic approach to addressing these things is really important to me. Uh, and, and to Matt. Thanks. Had to chime in there, didn't you, Matt? <laughs> didn't want to be left out. I'm, I'm on this podcast. And me, yeah, I'm yeah. here too. We'll see, if, we'll see if you don't get edited out there. I'm not, yeah, that's that not one. making like, it in. I don't, I don't know if you're going to make the cut. Yeah, yeah definitely <laughs> I not. Um, before this podcast, Matt and I were chatting and he mentioned something which is really interesting. He's now stealing my questions, Leah. I'm basically stealing Matt's question, but it was kind of about, but the question was kind of about us anyway. So I I feel I'm within my rights to steal it. Um, (laughs) Everybody that worked at Whisper or a lot of the people that worked at Whisper have a very pragmatic and strategic approach to addressing these big animal welfare issues. A lot of the people that I continue to work with and that you do and people who from our past, whether it be Ellie Hibby or mm-hmm. Dave Eastham or all of the people that we have in common that we know went through the doors a whisper at some point. And do you think that, because it was a huge learning curve for me when I was there and I'm anticipating it was for you as well. And do you think that the organization itself, because you were confronted with so many issues that you had no choice but to think strategically and that the organization itself was inherently strategic in many ways. Do you think that that led to the way in which so many of us think now? Or do you think the organization attracted people that were perhaps already inclined to think that way and were more strategic and less kind of banner-waving animal rights activists? That's an interesting question. Um, It's probably a combination of both, I would guess. You know, I was responsible for hiring some of those people. So when I think back, we were looking for people who were professional and logical. And we did look down on the PETA-esque strategies of just Mm. making noise. And I remember giving campaign strategy workshops where I said, this is why this isn't effective. You get in the media, but nothing changes. No policy, no institutional change. All you did was make a lot of noise. And I don't see the point of that. And we used to use like the running with the bulls in Pamplona, the activity Peter would do where people would get naked and run and it would get attention every year. But we said, but it keeps happening. It's like part of it now. It's exciting. And it's now you're almost like perpetuating the event now. And so there was a kind of person that worked at WISPA, I think that was really, we held people accountable. We were held accountable. How are we going to make an impact? Well, we have the whole world to deal with. How in the world do we make decisions when we have the whole world and all the animals and all the ways that humans cause suffering? How are we going to make some decisions about this? And I remember sitting down with the people you've mentioned, with Dave and Ellie and Amy Firth and us creating Mm -hmm. this matrix where we took these issues, which was looking at the longevity of some suffering, the number of animals, and the acuteness of suffering. And we tried to map it all out and try to make some decisions on like what issues should we prioritize based on these things? Which ones checked all of those boxes the most? And what I later learned when I moved to the United States is those are part of the central tenets of effective altruism, which is looking to use data to do the most good. And I don't, are you familiar with this philosophy? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yes. So Peter Singer really developed this philosophy in a big way. And there's also the Center of Effective Altruism, which is in England. And it's this concept of three things that you look at problems with. And these are global problems. They're tractability, neglectedness, and the number affected. And so when you look at the world and all the problems that you have, when you use those three criteria, factory farming comes up there with like malaria and other poverty and health related issues. And we were doing that at WISPA before there was this name for it, before there was this mm. philosophy for it, that then, you know, Peter Singer now teaches at Princeton. 
and a whole school of thinking has been developed and a whole conferences are about effective altruism, which is to use data to do the most good because we just have limited resources to affect the problems. We have to be strategic. So there's definitely something that we had to do, but also because we were trying to be this professional organization and raise the notion of what it was to be somebody who worked in animal protection, that it was a professional field, that we wanted to be taken seriously because these were serious issues. That was part of the ethos of WISPA at the time. Yeah, I love that, Leah. And um, I often, you know, that whole period through WISPA, it's it's almost like the Chicago Bulls in basketball. <laughs> you guys were just like, honestly, so many people that I meet that are amazing came from WISPA at that period. So I'm probably going to make a Netflix show after you guys. <laughs> <laughs> like the last dance, but for Whisper. So. Well, you'll have to include a lot of going to the bar after work. That was like the Voxel bars were well attended by that crew where we did our best thinking on the back of napkins. Oh, so. absolutely. Those were the days. As you were speaking there, and, and because Harry keeps stealing my questions, um, <laughs> I think of a new one. What was that transition like? from being the director of campaigns there to going back to the US and having to set up a given, it's you know, sort of like an extension of an existing organization, but it's still very much a new organization in, in essence. What was that like for you logistically and the challenges that you faced? Well, in many ways, it was a lot of fun because I had no responsibilities whatsoever. I had no one to manage and I got to carve out the path as I saw. So it was like being an investigative journalist in many ways. And I had a lot of freedom to think through the problems in a whole new way and address the issues in a whole new way, in a totally new place, which I thrive off of that sort of thing. And I didn't have to deal with any of the, you know, big budgets and management meetings and things like that. So that part was really great. The part that was hard is having so little money to deal with such a big problem and knowing so few people at first and that sort of challenge of realizing, oh my gosh, at the time, no one was dealing with broiler chickens, which is what I decided to focus in on because nobody was dealing with it. And that just felt like an overwhelming problem. And also moving to the United States was just a real shock. Um, So I, I grew up in Spain. And then I went to university in Florida, I should say my early years until I was 11 were in Florida, then I went to Spain, then I went back to Florida for university. And then I went to England for 10 years. So I spent more than half my life in Europe. And when I moved back to the States, it was a shock to see how different the animal movement was here and then Europe. Whereas Europe, it had been a very professional with professional processes and systems and a professional animal protection movement. The United States is far more animal rights and far more grassroots and really more gritty, way more gritty than what I had experienced in London and kind of figuring out what are the bonuses of that actually? What are the positives of that? And what are the negatives um, was probably the biggest adjustment for me trying to navigate that as a person who had experienced a very professional animal protection movement in Europe versus the United States. And when you were there, you started off obviously doing some investigating and you were starting to understand the situation with broiler chickens more by seeing what it was really like going and visiting these places. And for somebody that had spent so many years going to so many places and seeing so many horrible things, was there still something about being confronted by the scale and the cruelty that still shocked you? Were you prepared for it? Did it surprise you? How did it affect you when you were actually confronted by this? It was very shocking. I had been, since I had been in the United States, so I moved here in 2009, at the end of 2009, and I spent three or four years just trying to see the inside of a chicken factory farm, and it had been impossible. There was no transparency and no accountability, and no organization had even done an undercover investigation since... 2003 or 2004, something like that. No one had seen the inside of a chicken factory farm. There had not been cameras. There had not been photos. And I'd be calling customer service. I'd be calling the companies. Please, can I have a tour? And they they wouldn't give them. So the opportunity to see them, I knew whatever was behind those closed doors, they did not want people to see. And so when I first saw them, it was very shocking. It was the smell and the suffering, the crowdedness, the dust. Walking in, I was just hit with this 
the first time I walked in, which Craig Watts gave me a tour of his house, you know, you're hit with this smell that is, it just assaults your body in the first instant. And you can't even look around because your eyes are watering and you're coughing and you adjust after a minute. And then when you adjust, what you adjust to is a sea of suffering chickens who are so overgrown that they can't walk properly and they're sitting on litter and they're limping around, panting. The extremes in the United States are, there are no rules on chickens. There are no laws on how you can have to keep them. And so whatever goes, whatever you want goes. And growing chickens to the size of turkeys, fine. Growing chickens so they can't walk, fine. Growing chickens so they're sitting on litter and have raw bed sore breasts, fine. And that's what I was assaulted by, like smell, the visual, all of it. It was beyond what I expected because I had seen European facilities and there were rules. Even though they're not great rules, they're rules. But there's no rules in the United States. And that was really horrible to realize, but also fired me up like nothing else. There's a real almost parallel between, and I'm not comparing, but I mean a parallel just sort of in a looser sense, with the farmers as well in some regards, at Lear, in that this industry, the large scale companies are taking advantage or the farmers themselves end up in lots of debt and it's quite a horrific industry at times for them as well not comparing obviously but you know things aren't easy for the farmers either are they that's right and of course like I also totally avoid the suffering of any individual with another individual but what I've realized is over the years is the system relies on treating beings as expendable and that includes farmers and slaughterhouse workers and the animals and All of those, the costs of the system are externalized to those beings and to the environment. And that's what makes it an efficient process that gets cheap meat on our plate. And where I started off my career, very much focused on just internalizing the costs for animals. So that means giving them more space, slowing down the breeds, open sides and outdoor access so that everything costs more. And that means you're paying the true price for the life an animal should live at the cash register. And now I've thought, well, it's not just that. It's the farmers should be paid more. The slaughterhouse workers should be in safer environments and they should be paid more. All of the things that allow the system to be a system of oppression, to be a system that externalizes costs, those are the things. We have to work on all of those things to bring down a system of oppression. And with the farmers, and this is specific to the United States, it's not as relevant in England, for example, the producers have come up with a very clever system where they are not responsible if the birds die. The farmer is. They are not responsible for the equipment, the land, and even the pollution. That all rests on the back of the farmer. The farmer has to take out a giant loan to pay for all of that, the size of a mortgage that takes them 20 to 30 years to pay off. And the only way they can pay that off is by continuing to raise chickens. But they're only guaranteed a contract for three months. So they live flock to flock. And while that goes really well at first, where you know they're like, oh, this is great. If everything keeps going like this, I'll pay off my loan in 20 years. But then it's a factory farm. Chickens get sick, they die, and you don't get paid for dead chickens. So they get less of a paycheck, but the mortgage stays the same, and they start to fall behind on their loans. And very quickly, the farmers realize they've made a mistake, but they can't get out. They're essentially indentured servants and they take out more money and then they're further behind and they're further captured in the system. And working with a factory farmer made me realize how the farmers in rural America are being preyed upon in order to produce cheap meat. There are very few job options in rural America. And the ones that I worked with, that I have worked with, are living, there are no other jobs. So in North Carolina, the tobacco industry fell out and chicken industry rolls up into town and offers farmers a contract. They think, great, dream come true. I get to stay on the land, only to realize they're indentured servants. And I could go on and on of all the places and people that the system relies on to squeeze them, to keep them under the thumb of an industry that really should be internalizing this cost to themselves. And if they did, meat would be way more expensive and people would eat way less of it. From the history of factory farming, because it started out post-war and perhaps even a little bit earlier, but in the UK post-war, it was supposed to be a good thing. It was supposed to 
improve welfare because the understanding at the time was if you have animals in closer proximity, you can keep better eye on them. They can be better. We can raise them under better conditions. We can feed the nation, that kind of thing. But that so quickly transitioned into what it is now. And at what point did it really start to go wrong? And did anybody even notice? I mean, obviously they didn't because we're where we are now. But at what point did it all start to turn upside down like that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The system itself was created in post-World War II in the time of food shortages. And the purpose was to get more food into people's mouths and to do it in a way that was cheap and efficient and government subsidies were created both in the EU and the United States in order to achieve that. Now, the problem is we continue to use a system that was devised very long time ago for a very different problem today. And the reason that what's happened over the time is those industries grew and benefited from those subsidies and they grew a force, a lobbying force that maintained that in government, especially in the United States. The animal agriculture industry lobby is massively powerful. They pay for the candidates that are later elected and it's not a coincidence. They are expecting laws that favor them as a return for that. And this is a, a very clear difference between the EU and the, and the US where their lobbying limits are not set and there's all kinds of ways in which you can build that force. So it started, it's kind of the butterfly effect where it just grew the butterfly wing, you know, going up and up, out and out and out, which started as to devise a solution to a problem we were having in the moment. But then some people got advantages from that and the advantages just kept growing and got out of control. And today, that is what we suffer from, the amount of subsidies going into supporting a bankrupt system that otherwise would have failed by now is why it perpetuates. Coming back to your experiences in Georgia and so forth, what was it about the meeting with Craig Watts? I suppose it's important to share what happened with the listeners, but I'm really interested to know as well is, is what do you think about that story in particular made it so powerful? and resonated so much in the media and the wider public. Yeah, for those who don't know, you know, I'm a vegan animal rights activist, and I joined forces with a chicken factory farmer from rural North Carolina named Craig Watts. And what happened is a journalist introduced us. I had been trying to get onto a chicken factory farm to see what it looks like, to film it, to show people. And a journalist introduced me to Craig. And Craig invited me to his farm. And I was honestly scared out of my mind. It was me and a, a friend of mine who's a filmmaker named Reagan Hodge. And we just got in the car from Atlanta and we drove five hours east until we ended up in front of his house. And the whole time we're thinking, I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I gave the address to my coworker and to my husband and said, this is where you look for me if I don't come back, probably buried in the chicken litter, rotting away. <laughs> and when I got there, it was not what I expected. We sat in his living room. My intention was to get footage and get out of there. I thought he'd change his mind. I didn't know. I thought he was out of his mind. And I just wanted to get the footage. My intention was not to build bridges, not to become friends with him. But what happened when I got there is he invited me into his house. We sat in his living room and we poured over papers and video and his story. And what started off as, you know, an early morning kind of discussion turned into a whole day. He has three children. He has twins that are the same age as my oldest. And he was saying the same things about the way he want, what he wanted for the world that I want, which is to hand his children a better world. And that he couldn't stand that this is what his life had turned into and he had to do something. And I just thought, gosh, like Craig Watts is another version of me, but he just was born in rural North Carolina. And what would happen if I had been born him? Would I have made the same choices? Would I have had many choices? And this realization that this person who I thought up until this point was my arch enemy actually had more in common than I cared to admit. He had a lot in common with me. And in fact, us working together was such a surprise. When we ended up doing something neither one of us expected to do, which was to film and then come out with a five-minute film on the injustices within chicken factory farming, that people were being lied to, that it wasn't humane. At the time, the chicken was being called humanely raised, and we showed it was not what anybody in their right mind thinks is humanely raised. 
and that the farmer is kept under the thumb, that the animals suffer gravely. We got a New York Times piece and it went viral. In one day, we had a million views on our video. It was insane. Never and probably never will again experience anything like that. How quickly during that conversation with Craig, and I'm sure there was more than one, how quickly did that shift take place from looking to just capture the footage to realizing what it was, the story that you needed to tell in such a different way from the story you anticipated going in to see? How quickly did that come about, that realization that this is what I want to do, this is how I want to explain it, here's the foundation of the story of what it is we're trying to say? It took many months. So the first time I visited him was in May of 2014, and we ended up coming out with the footage in December of 2014. And it was over many visits back there, walking the barns with him as he picked up dead and dying chickens and listening to him and understanding what it was to be a chicken factory farmer that I started to change my mind. It was not immediate, but I started to change my mind about this person doesn't want to do this, but how is he going to get out of it realistically? And then that led me to to sit down and think, like, this is a bigger strategy than I had thought of before, where one of the bricks in the wall of factory farming are the contracted chicken farmers. And I could take that brick out. And that was a gradual thing of building a relationship with Craig and really learning to trust and like him and he with me as well. And he now talks about animal welfare as with as much passion as I do about the suffering. And I talk about the rights of farmers and their injustices with as much passion as he did. And so we've really taken on each other's causes. And I certainly got a lot of flack for that. I mean, there were plenty of animal people that said that is not okay. Those farmers are abusing animals and they don't deserve our compassion, but I disagree. And the same with slaughterhouse workers. People will say they abuse animals. We should not care about them. And I disagree. I think it, the whole system relies on is a system of oppression that oppresses all of these different beings in order to succeed. And so we have to think about it from all of those perspectives. Couldn't agree more. And I was going to ask about that because obviously you were opening yourself up to abuse from the more rights-focused people in the animal movement. And I would imagine from Craig's point of view that he was opening himself up to criticism and abuse from people within the industry. And so how did you navigate that? How did you both deal with that from your different perspectives? Yeah, we did both do that. But I think because we had to look each other in the eye with integrity, I think that helped us stay the course. And even later, when if you fast forward a couple of years, the expose we did ended up getting me to the table with an even bigger so-called enemy, which was Jim Perdue himself. And Jim Perdue is the head of the sixth largest chicken company in the world, which is Perdue Farms. And that was another relationship very similarly, where we ended up realizing we had more in common, that they were shocked that I actually didn't want them to just stop raising chickens, that I wanted them to improve the lives of the chickens, and that they too wanted to do that. But then, like you're saying, he also suffered a lot of, Purdue also had to face a lot of industry criticism. And I had to face, then again, more criticism from more of the purest animal rights folks. And to me, I always think of the chickens and I think, what would they want? Do they want me to have a purist approach? And the analogy I often use when I'm challenged on this is because I am at heart, I want people to stop eating animals. That is my life goal. I do not think animals should be eaten. I think it, it's a moral issue for me. But what I say to people is if you are in a terrible prison on death row, and would you like a campaign that only works on the ending of the death sentence? Or would you also like them to improve your prison conditions while we work towards ending the death sentence? Because the ending the death sentence is going to take a really long time. And in the meantime, there's billions of animals in these atrocious conditions. So we do both. And that's, that's how I approach the problem, is as we work towards a plant-based world where we are not causing any suffering to animals through eating them, we also need to work on reducing their suffering as they're trapped in the system today. I 100% agree with you there. For me, it's the... Um the thread that connects what 
people see as animal welfare and animal rights, but I see them all as one lengthy thing. And at the end, you have the rights element, which is the ending of the suffering, the ending of the, the farming trade, the ending of the cruelty, those kinds of things. But to get there, there are all of these steps, and that's where the improvements in welfare and things. And you're so right, because I think one of the things that I really love about your approach is recognizing that you have to build these bridges, that the enemy isn't the enemy. The enemy is potentially the one that has control of the situation, and they're the one with the power. And so you need to be able to work in that environment to be able to come up with something that in your book, you kind of talk about the win-win, which is to improve the welfare of animals, you know, the business is involved as well. And so if there's a win for both, then that's the only way that you can achieve it. And it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from Jonathan Safran Foer in his book, Eating Animals, where he talks about wanting to transition the world into vegetarianism or veganism. And he says, you know, you could fight for the rest of eternity to get half the people in the world to become vegan or you could win a winnable fight of getting half the meals in the world to be vegan yep. for the animals there's no difference exactly yep that's and that's the strategic approach and you just have to win for the animals you have to think back if you had to stare a chicken or a pig or a cow in the eye and say did i do the best i could and not for my ego not for approval from to get awards but what would they want you to do this is an approach civil rights leaders use. Like if you're dealing with any social justice issue, you have to throw your ego aside as best you can. And as humans, that's difficult for us. And you have to think what moves the metrics forward. And when you were saying about the power, who has the power, I totally agree. And it takes me back to like my, my WISPA days when we would create these strategies and we would do these power pyramids where we would put who has the power at the top. And then we'd say, who influences those who have the power? And then what strategies do we need to influence them? And we used to create these power pyramids, which everybody who was at WISPA at that time knows what I'm talking about, because it was kind of a joke that we would, everything came down to a power pyramid. Every strategy started with a power pyramid and then identifying who has the power and then working on a strategy from there. And that's what you have to think about with chicken factory farming or any factory farming or is I'm not in charge of a single chicken. The chicken companies are and the farmers are. So if I want to change the lives of those chickens, I have to figure out a way to influence them. And the fastest way, the better. That's what the chickens would want. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to just thank you, Leah, for giving me the title of my Netflix special on Whisper, which is going to be called The Power Pyramid. <laughs> um, Perfect. Thank you for that. It's um, already been trademarked. Great, um, great. So don't get any ideas. <laughs> um, do that yourself. But what, what I love about that particular point in your career is for me, I felt like it really provided people with a story. And it was a story about two people on different sides of the situation, like you've said, two actors almost in the story, yourself and Craig. And I'm a big believer in the power of stories when it comes to animal welfare. And, and I think sometimes we don't use them enough and we tend to throw facts at people and hope that changes minds. Whereas I think stories are really powerful because people connect with stories every day. What do you think the role of the, the media is? And, and do you think we can do more in animal welfare to try and use it in an even more effective way? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Narratives are everything. The power of stories is what changes hearts and minds, not statistics. But what I think is important is to tell the right stories that are metrically important. We have to be careful not just to tell any old story. We have to tell stories that are um, moving an important issue forward. So you know, telling stories about factory farming are important. And I've always thought that. And telling the story of Craig Watts, I think, helped people understand the individual suffering of the farmer and of the chicken and the injustice in a way I could have never done with laying out, this is how many farmers live below the poverty line. This is how many chickens suffer. This is the way they suffer. It just wouldn't have resonated. And the story is what changes people's behavior, not the facts, not the statistics. And also something that I was really keen to ask you, Leah, was, um, I mean, I feel like I should apologize because I feel like we should be referring to you as Madam President. Um, <laughs> feel free, really feel free. Point. It's not too late. It's not too late. You obviously, you move from that to the incredible mercy for animals uh, where you've become president there. <laughs> um, Madam President there. 
I wanted to just sort of give you the opportunity and the, and the listeners to hear about the incredible work you do there, because I know in particular, you've continued to work with food brands and also farmers, almost to sort of think about the future and to transition to a plant-based or plant farming rather than agriculture, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I became president at Mercy for Animals two years ago almost now. And it's one of the largest farmed animal rights organizations in the world. It has offices in China, India, Brazil, Mexico, the United States, and Canada. And our mission is to construct a compassionate food system by doing the two things I've been talking about on this podcast, which are reducing the suffering of animals trapped in the system and ending the exploitation of farmed animals altogether. Those are the two tracks we follow. We both work on welfare and we work on people moving and companies moving and governments moving towards plant-based eating. And we do it probably best known for our undercover investigative work, which we do in Mexico, Brazil, the United States, and Canada. But we also work with big food companies. We have a corporate engagement team that has moved many companies to adopting cage-free policies, crate-free policies, and we're also working on broilers. And last November, we introduced a new program called Transformation, which I brought with me as an idea that I had been percolating in my mind for some time which was to facilitate farmers transitioning from chicken factory farming or any factory farming, but we're focusing first on chicken factory farming to plant-based farming. And we worked with a farmer in West Virginia, and you can find on our website, thetransformationproject.org, and you can see a video on this man named Mike Weaver in West Virginia. And it turns out that those barns used for raising chickens are really good for growing something else, which is hemp. And he transitioned to hemp. He used to grow for Pilgrim's Pride and did chickens. And now he's doing hemp and he's making more money, employing more people, using less water and no environmental impact of a negative kind. And so this got us going and we're now working with three other farmers like this. And it's usually hemp and mushrooms seems to be the place where we can make some progress with this. But the idea is the narrative, right? So I'm not pretending that taking five or even a thousand farmers out of chicken farming is going to end it. But what it tells is a story of hope, a story of the future, of what it could look like. That there's another way for rural America besides chicken farming. And we plan, I have big, big ambitions with this project if we get the funding over time. It's not just to do this in the United States, but in India and Brazil as well, where it's a very similar contract farming system and farmers don't like doing it. And there's a huge demand for other products. If we could connect with some of the plant-based companies too, to provide some of their feedstocks for their products, like I think the future is this exciting plant-based protein product model that will be our future because it's just a math problem. We can't keep raising this many chickens and pigs and cows because it takes too much arable land to do it. It's not efficient. And with the population getting to be 10 billion by 2050, we can't do it. And so we need to future-proof our rural communities. We need to future-proof our markets. And I'm excited to be part of building that. That, to me, is one of the most exciting things that we're leading on. I think that's amazing. And I think that the growth of the plant-based alternatives is huge. And even in the last few months, everything that I'm reading, certainly from the US and Europe, is that people are transitioning quicker as a result of lockdown to plant-based alternatives and the growth, it's outselling everything else. It's the largest growth sector in, in fruit production at the moment. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and the pandemic has only made that clear in people's minds, the connection mm. between the health issues and factory farming and distrusting meat as a protein source. And in fact, there was a Bloomberg piece that talked about the virus could be spurring on the biggest retreat in meat eating in decades. And specifically, uh, said that per capita consumption is set to fall by 3% in 2020 to its lowest since 2011. And that was from UN data. And they don't expect the consumption patterns globally to go back up until at least after 2025. It's taken that much of a spiral down. And if we play our cards right and meet consumers where they're at, and we plan to do that, so Mercy for Animals is planning to launch a big human health campaign to make the connection, I think that we will create a tipping point for people rethinking, where should my protein come from? Should it come from factory farmed animals that are leading to diseases and pandemics and health issues and it's just downright cruel? Or should they come from yellow peas and mung beans and soy that doesn't cause any of that? 
it's really obvious. Yeah. It's something that I was, I mean, first of all, uh, Lee, you're going to be getting a request for a Zoom and I'm going to be holding a piece of paper up at you that says open UK office. <laughs> well, yeah. my, my, my defense will be, I'm just, I'm just inspired by you, Leah. Um, <laughs> Matt's actually been texting me just now. He sent me a copy of his CV <laughs> to say whether it's appropriate to send it. To <laughs> um, so I have no shame, Leah. Okay. Um, That's fine. That's fine. That's how people get ahead, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so thinking about your role for Mercy for Animals, when you when you look at Mercy for Animals and you know you're doing so much incredible work and and you have so many incredible staff members around the world in all these offices doing work, when you go on the website, how do you feel about the fact that it's been and also since you're doing this recording you did with the chicken farms, mm-hmm. how's it been been in the media and almost being the face of this movement? You know, with your book, the TED Talk, all the interviews and all the documentaries you've been a part of. How's that been for you? Was that an adjustment or is it something you enjoy or are there positives and negatives to that sort of experience? That was a very hard adjustment for me, moving to Mercy for Animals. I remember when I announced that they announced that I was going to be the president, I went from having like 10 Instagram followers to like 4,000. You know, like it was... And the attention and the spotlight on who am I? What are my specific philosophies and beliefs? And where do I draw the line on this and that? And being scrutinized at that level meant I had to be crystal clear. I couldn't say things that I was just pondering. I needed, when I spoke publicly, to speak clearly because so many people were now listening. And it represents more than just what I think. I'm now representing a big organization and a movement. And that was difficult because I certainly messed up about a million times where I would say something that I personally thought or was thinking about or hadn't really solidified my ideas on yet. And then next thing I know, there's some Facebook rant about it, right? And it would surprise me every time. And it still happens from time to time. But what I've come to realize is there is an opportunity here that I do thrive on because of what we spoke about at the beginning, which is having the most impact. So here I now have a much bigger megaphone. I just have to think a little more carefully and clearly before I turn the megaphone on. (laughs) And that's important because so many more people are listening. But that's a huge opportunity. And I'm so grateful to be able to have that influence on on the animals that are suffering. And I try not to forget what a great opportunity that is, that I should be grateful for that opportunity. You've been in animal welfare now professionally for 20 20 years? Yeah, 20 over that time, everything that you've seen and been involved in and done and achieved and learned, if you could go back to your 20-year previous self, what bits of advice would you give yourself? Um, I think it would be to probably uh, not be afraid of mistakes, not be so scared mm. of offending people or doing the wrong thing. Um, and that's what I tell women today, too, when they're starting in their field, or any woman working in the field. I think as women, we there's very clear statistics that we don't often go for things until we're 100% ready, whereas men will go for them when they're like 50% ready, right? And yeah. I would say, you know, we need more women voices. We need you to be out there. So go before you're ready and you'll figure it out. Fake it till you make it. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of that and it's how I got ahead for sure. But I do more of it. I'd say you live once. Mm-hmm. You're a speck of a speck of a speck in the universe. Just go for it. Don't hold back. Try things. Fail. Keep going and do it again. And I think of this kind of growth mindset. And scientists, for example, will they when they do experiments and they fail, they don't think of it as failure. They think of it as data until they get the right answer. And that's mm-hmm. the mentality that if I had taken that on sooner, I definitely fully embrace that probably 10 years into my career. But if I had taken that on earlier, I think I could be even further. That's great advice. It's interesting you say that. That's a conversation I've had with my wife several times, that exact thing of men basically faking it until they're making it far more comfortably. And she asks me about that from time to time and feels that she needs to be ready to do something. Whereas I'm going, "Eh, you're ready enough. You'll work out the rest of it. Yeah, it's definitely true. And I also loved what you said there about learning from mistakes and things. And there's, um, I'm sure you used to watch the show West Wing. Oh, yes. There was a wonderful line from that that I always remember, which is Leo McGarry, who was the chief of staff to the president, 
And he goes, in the history of everything that worked, there was a time when it didn't work. And that's something that really resonated with me. Exactly. That's a great line. I'm going to remember that. I think also there's something that I've made notes throughout this. I, I sent a WhatsApp Harry the notes because they're ridiculous uh, <laughs> that I've made for this interview as we've been going there. Oh, it's, it's, horrendous. it's horrendous. If you saw this, like, you, you would... Like <laughs> Clinically <laughs> insane. This is the ramblings of a madman. Yeah. There's, there's just no coherence. It's just words across paper. Yeah. <laughs> it's like letting a nursery child loose with a pencil giving it a kind of red bull. Um, so, but something that I, I wrote in capital letters um, was that, and I love that you, you just said that about putting yourself out there, because I think in your experience, how much you've put yourself out there from whether it was a whisper when you were reading up about how to run a campaign the night before to, you know, <laughs> the piece of paper. I can't wait till Philip hears this. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the piece of paper to try and get a new office, which brace yourself, I'm committed now that will be happening. <laughs> Do even videos with, with Craig Watts where, you know, you put yourself in a very a situation when no one's really put themselves in before in that in that sort of industry. For me, I think it's very difficult in this industry to sometimes think about how you can create something yourself because it's, you know, there's so many inspirational people like yourself, like Jill Robinson, who have created organisations and people almost sometimes I feel like they need to wait for those people to give them an opportunity or to open that door. When sometimes just putting yourself out there and pushing yourself, and I don't mean creating an animal's Asia or a mercy for animals, but I mean just taking a risk and going for something can get you somewhere. That's happened to me now on two occasions. And I know it's probably shock you that anyone would ever give me a job, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I found that so inspirational. And I think it's such an important message to people listening who are trying to change career or get into animal welfare. I, yeah, I hope that everybody takes that away is don't wait to be asked, especially if you're doing good in the world. Just go for it. I mean, what have you got to lose? But what have you got to gain? You could change the world. So go for it. So that was the Animal Chat podcast with Leah Garces. Harry Ekman, Leah Garces is incredible, isn't she? She is. She's fantastic. I so enjoyed speaking to her. It was it was a real privilege and a pleasure to speak to her. And just hearing about the work that she's done was tr truly inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like there's no other word. There's no other word mm -hmm. that describes the work that she's done and the and the way that she talked about it. She was genuinely inspiring. You know, uh, something. one of the messages I got from it as well, Harry, is that if you listen back to like episode one of this whole podcast, mm. season one, where you and I talked about our journey in time mm. of welfare, and I always, I think nowadays it's really hard, particularly when you get to, you watch on YouTube, you watch TED Talks, we're exposed to so many people that are in the media and look as if they've made it and mm. they've got to where they've got. And you look at all their achievements and it's really hard for you to know when you've, you know, kind of speech marks, made it you know what is it hmm. to make it what is it and it's easy to always feel like you're not good enough or you hmm. don't quite have the skills hmm. or you feel like a fraud almost if you're turning up for an interview or a conversation or at a conference and you haven't got a doctorate or you haven't got a x amount of experience but hmm. leah jokes in her thing about how you know wing it till you make it but what I loved is, number one, she made things happen for herself. And I admire yeah. people that do that because that is not easy in this industry. And we've spoke yeah. about that before. But, you know, her the night before reading a book about campaigning and turning up going for a campaigning job. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't always have to be perfect and you don't always have to have all the answers. You don't always have to have the most brilliant CV. It's about you and your approach and your attitude sometimes. I know it's not always that easy and things aren't that mm. simple, but... I think from that message, we all have skills and you and I have talked about this throughout, having transferable skills. I agree with you completely. And one of the things that was really apparent speaking to Leah, it was the drive. Leah always had a very clear idea of what was right and what was wrong and what should be and what shouldn't be. And this pursuit of the cause that she was trying to to deal with the the improvements in animal welfare or all of these issues and obviously it was a learning curve and obviously every job that she went to she learned more but she had this clear direction she had this clear idea 
And she stuck with it and she wasn't afraid to say, this is what needs to be done. I want to do it. And she pursued it. And it's that tenacity and that belief in not necessarily yourself, but in the cause Mm. that really drove that forward. And I think that's a lesson that everybody, you don't have to be working in animal welfare for that to resonate a little bit. If you believe in what you're doing and you stick with it, then you can achieve a lot, whether in business or in animal welfare. Mm. And that's like you were saying, there's a lot of transferable skills and there's a lot of parallels in speaking to people in this podcast that isn't just about animal welfare. It's about the people and the journeys and how that translates into things we do in everyday life. I agree. And, and I think if you're looking for some inspiration and for ideas, really check out that cohort from World Animal Protection. That includes yourself, Harry Ekman, in there. I know you're very humble and you won't highlight that yourself, but it does. And people like Suzanne Rogers, people like Georgina Groves, people like Leah, you know, that sort of cohort from that, we joked about it in the podcast, mm. but like that cohort are all at the moment in animal welfare, running their own projects or working for massive organizations, driving this new approach, which is novel for animal welfare, which is human behavior change, you know, working mm. with people. It shouldn't be novel, but it is. There was something about that episode halfway through that I could have talked to Leah for ages. And, um, yeah, but the restraining what, order won't let you. Listen, honestly, how many restraining orders are you allowed before you go to prison? Asking for a friend. Uh, yeah, less just for than a friend. You, less than you have. I think the advantage that you have is you have multiple restraining orders from different people. I think if you had yeah, yeah. lots of restraining orders from one, then we'd be doing this podcast from yeah. you on the other side of a jail cell. Yeah. But fortunately, I think there's only two guests that don't have a restraining order against you. Well, listen, I mean, I, I do. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I tell you what, Harry. What? What we want people, we were talking about this at the start, we want people to share this because not only because we want people to listen to Lear, inspirational, blah, 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 but because we want to get to number one in the UK, the Science Nature Charts. We want to be number one. We, we do. We do want to be number one in the Because UK. we're number one in Portugal, where you are. Yep. We need to do it where I am. So, and America, fuck it, why not? Let's get to number one in America, Harry. Yeah, I agree. We want to be number one. So share this podcast. Share this yes. podcast. Make us number one. Not because we need to be number one, but because, you know. I do. Okay, Matt needs to be number one. I, I'm quite happy to just do the uh, decent and honorable thing and share the message of the podcast and uh, improve animal welfare. But Matt, it's all about glory and self-gratification. Yeah, I'd say that's, a load, that's so, a load of bollocks. We need so, to get so, number one. But um, so be it. So be it. I yeah. mean, you know, Matt and I are different people. We're different. Some of us are winners and some of us are Matt. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that backfired. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Um, so. <laughs> anyway, Matt. Did I try anyway. to get a job with Leah as well in that episode? Matt, you've tried to get a job with every remembered. fucking guest. You've literally tried to get a job with every guest we've My had on the podcast. My boss is going to be so angry. It's, it's ridiculous. You genuinely have touted yourself to every <laughs> single guest we've had on the podcast. Uh, and uh, uh, still no offers. But No, I know. Let's not think about that too much. Um, but what we should uh, think about is next week's podcast. Oh, my goodness. Harry... Yes. It's only fitting that for the number one rated podcast in the yeah. niche category, the Animal Chat podcast, mm -hmm. that we have an Academy Award winner. We actually have we actually, an Academy Award. We actually got an Academy Award winner to come on this. Like an Oscar winning <laughs> yep. director. Yeah. Somebody that Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie at a ceremony, maybe Tom Cruise if he goes to those sort of things anymore. He's probably not been nominated since the 90s. They were there looking at this guy winning an award, and now he's on our podcast. Yeah. So who is it? Ladies and gentlemen, on the podcast next week. The director of the Oscar-winning documentary, The Cove, Louis Sahoyas. Louis Sahoyas, Academy Award-winning director. And also, he was the director or producer of Game Changers, which I believe was yes. announced as the most downloaded documentary in history. This week? That is correct. This week on Netflix, they announced, although it's available in other places on as well as Netflix, but yes, yep. produced by James Cameron, starring all kinds of amazing people. And yeah, he was involved as a, as a producer of that. And so, yeah, number one downloaded podcast, number one downloaded documentary. Yeah. Uh, it's no in wonder. In many different ways. <laughs> 
no wonder that he wanted to appear on this podcast. But it's it was amazing speaking to him, wasn't it? Like next week's podcast is fantastic. It's really cool talking about the story of the coves, talking about the story of the documentary of the making of the cove it was a real it was fantastic speaking to him wasn't it yeah it was he also is the founder of the oceanic preservation society i should also say which was sort of involved with the cove but yeah it was just i mean there's an oscar winner and he's awesome and if you haven't watched the cove highly recommend it go and watch it before the podcast but even if you don't afterwards you'll go and watch it thank you everybody for listening thank you for making us number one or number whatever we are in the places that you're listening to it yep tune in next time for louis Sahoyas. but in the meantime bye number one podcast animal chat science and nature top five japan <laughs>